and welcome to Lily High on Life. Today I'm excited once again about our guest. He is a very, very close friend of mine that I've known for too many years to count. David Traub, welcome to Lily High on Life. Happy to be here, Lily. I, I truly am. And I, I love this show and what you're doing and what you're reinforcing as well. Thank you. So one of the things I have to tell you about David, because he really is an unusual human being. Um, When I first met David, uh, he's one of these people who I felt I'd known the whole of my life. And then I discovered that everybody felt that way about David when they first met him. (laughs) But it doesn't take away from his very genuine sense of self and who he is. And he has such a wide diversity of friends, not just acquaintances, many, many acquaintances, but many, many more very, very close friends from actual princes to paupers to everything in between. And my favorite description of David, he gave me himself. One day when he finally dies on his tombstone, it will read, here lies David Traub, you probably knew me. Does that cover it, David? (laughs) Well, actually, there's a a related uh, related, uh, comment. I usually say that when they close the casket on me, I'm going to raise the casket back up and tell one more joke. <laughs> um, but that was a good one. That was a good one. And, you know, Lee, um, uh, living in Europe as I do currently, um, I cringe a little bit at the idea of having so many friends because typically people in Europe uh, have but a few friends and don't even have that many acquaintances. It's a very different you know, maybe more tribal existence than, you know, the West Coast, Silicon Valley, which attracted me and so many other people that were considered a little bit crazy, I suppose, anywhere else in the world. But in Silicon Valley, we, we all thrived. And I would say it was as much my tribe, you know, as, uh, as my friends. We all had different roles, but we all hung out and uh, had a great time and did a lot of work together. And then I got married, and slowly but surely, I went to the next phase of my life, which I am so very grateful now. And you know, uh, anyway, uh, I'm very happy to be here. Yes, and uh, I moved back to Australia about four years ago already. It's gone so quickly, but my definition of friendship has actually changed, and. I may not see people as often. I may not even speak to people um, anywhere near as often as what I did before. But everybody's life has changed. They're uh, most a lot of my friends are now not only parents but grandparents as well. So everybody has wider circles. But true friendship is when you do speak to somebody who has been a friend. It's like you spoke yesterday and you treat them almost like family where you would do anything for them. And that's real friendship. And that's how I feel about you. And Lily, it's how I feel about you. I remember clear as day, uh, you know, the last dinner that you and I shared in your really cool apartment in Westwood 
Um, and uh, I, you know, I remember just about every interaction we ever had. Um, you trigger two thoughts. One of them is, um, I often tell people, I have no connections and I have no contacts, only relationships, because I'm really only interested in knowing who people really are. And if we align from a values perspective and from a life mission perspective, et cetera, then I'm very open to a relationship. Uh, I do filter for values and for mission because, uh, which brings me to my second point, I really believe that the war, the world is at war now, or rather our species is on the precipice between tribalism and humanism. And I really believe that given the existential crises, the many of these crises that we ourselves have created, you know, for various reasons, which we can get into later in this conversation, I, I, I see all of us as one. And we, the sooner we wake up to our brotherhood and sisterhood, you know, and what we have in common, the better, uh, because we need to work together to, to solve these problems. And this is actually what Lily Hyatt Life is all about, because you can look at it globally, but the truth is what's really important is each person that you are interacting with on a daily basis. And um, Lily High on Life is actually very selfish because the kind of life I the kind of life I want to live is to be surrounded by people who feel good because when you feel good you're not as likely to hate or attack or do things that that make you feel bad. So feeling good is really the core, and uh, and I know that's something that you are looking at in so many different ways through so many different projects you're working on at the moment, David. I don't even know where to, where to start. Do you want to start by telling people a little bit about your 17 questions and then we can go on to your film credits and your music credits and your um, philosophy credits and your psychology credits and all those other wonderful things that um, are, are very much part of your resume. Well, before I do that, um, I want to just kind of go back to something you triggered. Um, there was an article recently um, that uh, by Anthony Hopkins. It was an editorial uh, that I read some, uh, somewhere, or somebody sent it to me, and he talked about giving himself the right to exclude people from his life that didn't give him joy, exclude people from his life that wanted to take his energy versus to give, exclude people from life that were unhappy. And, you know, I could understand from the perspective, from my perspective as a, as an entertainment producer, where he might be coming from, because if I get a thousand people a week trying to get me to do things, you know, he probably gets a hundred thousand people or maybe 10,000 or anyway, it's a lot more than me. And so I know how challenging it is to protect yourself and have a bubble. Having said the above, uh, I didn't uh, like what he said from the perspective of humanity and where we have to go because I believe we need to embrace everybody one way or another. We need to create healthy people and I, and this may be a segue to your question of me now or this 
leg of the conversation, but um, I believe that the lack of mental wellness, which is somewhat pervasive in our species, is the cause for nearly all of the challenges that we have. And this began, uh, and for me, as a campaign and as an insight, all the way back to the early 80s, the middle 80s, when I was still at Berkeley working on my undergraduate work, uh, which was the uh, integration of, or the application of Soviet propaganda film techniques to improving American K-12 history and mass videos. And uh, I was intrigued with, I was, one of my degrees was in rhetoric, and I was intrigued with the notion as to how scientifically we could analyze a writer uh, and who he truly was or she truly was just from their writing and the choices they make and the characters they create. And um, the way the thesis came about was a professor took a shining to me and called me into her office and she asked me a question which we, we have to ask ourselves and our children, which is, if you had a million dollars in the bank and you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, I would make movies, because I made a movie when I was 15 in high school, which was very fun. And I said, but probably more importantly, I would teach, because I love what happens to a person's eyes, the way their pupils dilate, when they have an epiphany, or my God, they realize they're intelligent, or really, wow, a person realizes their life purpose. I believe every human being is potentially a genius and a superhero once they discover why they're here. And um, so she said, if you don't combine those two studies into one, you don't have integrity. So I did that, developed my thesis, and the net-net of my thesis, um, which was an honors thesis, I was given a very good grade, and I was told it was a failure. And I was very confused by that. And... Uh, they told me that the reason they gave me a good grade is I did well in all the subjects that they taught me, but I didn't do well in education, which they didn't teach me. I got out of a book in the library, and the mistake I made was assuming movies could teach us across all of the types of learning, motor skills, verbal skills, higher thinking, symbolic learning, and what was then called attitudinal learning. Today it's called biopsychosocial literacy, but it's really just mental health. They don't like using that term, and I, I'm very aware that I'm talking too much right now. But just to close this particular uh, volley, uh, what I understood was movies are great, and they truly impact people, but only in the area of mental health. And it turns out that there's no role for mental health, in, at least in the American K-12 school system. But it's true of many or even most. There's one counselor for 489 students, this is at least back in 84, but I don't think it's gotten any better, it's probably gotten worse. And one counselor for every thousand students in California, counselors spend 8% of their time with students on average, half that is job counseling, half that's career counseling, and there is no mental health counseling unless you're highly truant. And so I realized there's no way we can depend on our kids to save us if they don't even understand why their parents fight or get divorced why they become bullies or get bullied, why they feel compelled to drink, join gangs, smoke, or do worse. Absolutely. So I dedicated my life at that point to the delivery of mental health, Absolutely. to entertainment technology, and I'll stop there. And, well, you <laughs> no need for you to stop at all, but to that end, exactly, you introduced me to uh, who to Eamon Sawaf, who is a very, very dear friend of mine now, of both of ours. And Eamon 
actually looked at emotional intelligence, both in children and in adults, which is truly just mind-blowing because he wrote the most fabulous set of children's books, which I'm sure you've seen, as well as a book for corporate that sold, that was translated into 50 different languages, uh, both on the same subject and so important. Emotional intelligence, which is really what you were describing, is the most important thing about learning about relationships. I'm sorry that I broke my rule of never talking beyond three minutes in an interview, but uh, that was a that was a you know that was a sequence that that I had to share. Iman is amazing. It was actually emotional literacy that he coined. It was before uh, the big book came out on emotional intelligence by Daniel Goleman, and Iman actually uh, and I we met uh, while he was writing those books, and I'm definitely. Uh, a massive advocate of his, uh, I would even say almost a disciple, uh, he taxonomized the, you know, the unfolding of, of a number of different emotions and against that taxonomy began to create solutions in curriculum and then created a whole pan media um, platform for addressing it and just hasn't been able to pick it up, get it picked up yet simply because uh, there needs to be, you know, these kind of things that, that change and go against society that disrupt really need the gravitas of major universities providing credibility and then obviously a lot of budget to you know get it out there. But he, he's done and continues to do an incredible job of getting his work out there. And I, I intend to deliver more of it through the various channels that I'm creating as well so, at the right times. So please yes. send my regards to Iman. Absolutely. So he's very happily living in Lebanon now. And um, we recorded an interview, but the line was so bad that um, I need to record another interview with him. But I absolutely acknowledge what you say in terms of um, credibility through universities and colleges and all of that kind of thing. But at the same time, I kind of rail against it because on the premise that it needs, that it can be absolutely simplified down to understanding how other people think and feel. And when you understand how other people think and feel, then you can react in a way that makes everybody happy rather than educational institutionalize it, as I call it. Well, you know, I'm not absolutely not talking about take having some university translate his work into very you know challenging to embrace curriculum at all what i'm talking about is having a university and i'm going through this this process in my own intellectual property which i can talk about in a few minutes uh but having them um validate the underlying assumptions by which you make statements about human behavior is very important and you know per my my comment of a few minutes ago the reason why today the educational world calls mental health biopsychosocial literacy and why they called attitudinal learning back in the 80s is that mental health is a very precarious, soft science. 
psychology is a soft science. Lawyers greatly dislike it because if you say the wrong thing to a kid and they cut themselves or worse, you have liability. You have to be very, very careful. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, the religions have similar issues because, you know, many people see the brain, you know, consciousness, the spirit as the world of God. And, uh, and it is the world of God in many ways. Uh, but, you know, it's inappropriate to mess with it. And for that matter, mess with the different structures by which one interacts. So it's, mental health is very complicated because it's core to our existence. In fact, I don't even call it mental health myself. I call it mental wellness. So would which you to agree? Which to me has a far more positive connotation. Would you agree that um, it really is all about feeling good, being happy, experiencing joy in your life? Well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's it exclusively. Uh, I read a statistic somewhere that anybody that's 100% happy is considered psychopathic <laughs> um, you know, because li life is not like that. But happiness is absolutely one of the indicators of mental health. But there are many facets of mental health. For example, being able to handle crisis or being able to handle conflict or being empathic or compassionate to others know in their challenge or sadness or challenge but so all uh, of there that, are so many facets and all of that comes back to when you're making a decision any decision is it going to make you feel better and there were uh, there was a time i absolutely would have agreed with what you're saying about empathy and everything else but the wokeness that we're experiencing today in everyday life makes me question um, the role of empathy only because it's been taken to such a ridiculous degree. And by that, I mean, um, there are always people who are going to, ex who we all need to accept others, no matter who they are or what they look like or even how they behave. But when you start giving them rights without responsibilities and you have to have an institution set up six different toilets for six different uh, groups of genders, um, we really have gone a little too far from common sense, which is part of happiness. I, I'm not sure which of the genders I am. I'll have to ask my wife and son. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you're opening the door for, you know, a richer conversation between us. Yes. But let me, uh, because I, I definitely think that empathy is extremely important. Uh, but you're talking about political empathy, and that, that's probably a little bit of a different animal. So let's uh, circle around. Yes, 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 yes. I, I couldn't help myself. But let me, but let me, let me share a point. Let me share a, a point that you triggered. Uh, Khalil Gibran uh, wrote a book, um, and I'm just spacing on what it's called right now. Uh, but it was uh, he's a very um, well-known um, philosopher. And in the book, he talks about the three levels of giving. The lowest level of giving is when you give because you want something back. Uh, and, you know, I mean, maybe that's the giving scum, but it's transactional. So it's not giving from heart or giving from spirit. The middle level of giving, according to him, is when you give because it makes you feel good. 
so you're you're still getting something back, but it's much more subtle. It's not a, mm-hmm. a barter or a transaction per se. And then he said the highest level of giving was giving and then taking your next breath, which I, I loved. And I do spend a lot of my time pondering our species and where we are today and whether there's a chance that we can achieve what most other uh, mammals achieve, which is about a million to a million and a half years on this planet before they're extinct. We are arguably 75 to 300,000 years here. Just depends on who you talk to. Um, I think that it's not voting well for a million years at this point. And I, I, I do see uh, a, a dichotomy, a, ver- a chasm between the hopeful and the fearful, the tribalists versus humanists. And I'm still trying to get my arms around it, but certainly the world is becoming more polarized than it's been in a very, very long time. And so I, as a psychologist or as a scalable psychologist, which is how I define myself, um, I look, I spend a lot of time thinking about how we can come together and how we can survive and figure out how to more appropriately manage resources and really do what I think humans are ultimately built to do. And this is kind of a recent reflection as well, which is to experience freedom. Yes. You know, I, I, freedom was something that only, you know, the, the, the 100th of 1% experienced you know, 10,000 years ago, you know, just the tribal, you know, the tribal, you know, boss, the, the most powerful guy, and maybe his wife, and maybe their family, everybody else, you know, were, you know, were supplicants. And when they, when they went into agricultural farming, you know, you had the beginning of, you know, of more than, you know, two classes, you had maybe three classes. Maybe the, you know, the, of course, people didn't own their own land, uh, you know, but it was not really into until maybe right after World War II when the first major middle class evolved. I would call that America because America was blessed not to be destroyed during the wars and they had all these natural resources. And, and so there was a great middle class um, that, that went all the way until probably the Reagan era. And then it seemed to you know go back into decline for various reasons. And I'm a psychologist, I'm not a politician, so I don't want to get political. But I, I do think that our capacity to be sensitive to each other, to put ourselves in each other's shoes, is absolutely vital if we're gonna negotiate a harmonious relationship with each other. Well, I'm not talking about six bathrooms either. I'm talking about just you know avoiding conflict and avoiding nuking each other. The thing that does bring people together are things like music, which you've been very involved in. Um, music has a very unifying, bringing people together effect. And also, you know, the concept of, of being happy, being joyful, feeling good about yourself. Because when you feel good, you can't do anything that is destructive or harmful. So Lily, I promise you, this is not a conversation about not feeling well and not putting that at the highest priority. I love my life. I feel very good about me. I sleep really well at night because I do what I believe I'm supposed to be doing. I I have joy in my life, even when things are very difficult. And so I completely agree with you. But maybe what I'm saying is that there are different ways to achieve it. Um, you know, happiness is a biochemical response, 
you know, it's dopamines and various other chemicals, and they can be triggered in many ways. You know, you know, yes. many people achieve temporary happiness just through a, a wide variety of addictions because it's still chemical. And so I am a big advocate for healthy happiness, which comes from loving who you are and why you're here yes. and understanding your purpose and, and looking at all the negative things that have happened to you in life and turning them into positives. Yes. Happiness is a choice. So we're on yes. the same page there. I'm not 100%. putting down happiness or joy in the least. And my tagline for the show is actually change your attitude, change your life. So very much believe that. And that's the one thing you do have a choice in is what you're thinking. Absolutely. May I give you a a recommendation on your tagline? Sure. Uh, I don't believe in change. I believe in evolution. So I would say evolve your life instead of change your life. Because like it or not, everything that happens to us is part of of an ever aggregating whole that is us. Mm. And no matter how hard we try, you know, all the, the things that happen to us that are considered negative are still lessons to be, you know, learned, you know, called or gleaned or however you want to voice it. And, you know, the, the different proclivities we have, the aberrations we have, those are a gift. I, you know, my most important project, and you know that I've got multiple things happening, although they all relate to my single year, my singular life purpose. Yes. Is, you know, my 17 questions. And my 17 questions tool is based on the concept of experiential DNA. And my my belief is that every one of us on the planet has an absolutely unique uh, genetic DNA by design. So maybe we'll be the lucky human that's born with an aberrant kidney that can filter heavy metal from our fish, or maybe an aberrant adrenal that can handle flight, you know, stress and fight or flight mechanism in the 21st century, which I believe is hundreds to a thousand times more stressful than 10,000 years ago. But the problem is those few genetic changes, aberrations that make it into the gene pool, they only it only happens every 25,000 years or so from what I understand. Nearly all genetic changes or aberrations end in the instant death of the, of the you know, of the embryo. So I realized that we can't wait 25,000 years. We're so intelligent and dynamic species. So I created this concept called experiential DNA. And, you know, my tool is based on, you know, on that concept and aggregating what I call your experiential DNA across your dreams, intelligences, issues from childhood, job experience, et cetera, and interpolating that into a single one-minute overarching mythology which explains why you're on the planet, what your purpose is, and how to execute. Now, and that's must, probably the most important thing that I'm doing. Yes, and I must let people know that you've actually done your 17 questions to thousands of people um, across the world. So if you could just um, put that and the the results and the experience for people doing your 17 questions, if you could just... Um, elaborate a little more on that and just give people a real understanding of what it is and what you've found practically. When I was doing my undergraduate thesis uh, in 1980, you know, 81 to 84, it was really 82 to 84 when I focused on it, I was reading a book uh, uh, by Viktor Frankl in Search of Meaning, who apparently is, is 
since been discredited. You know, I, I need to learn more about that. But what he wrote was brilliant. He and actually he, was not was discredited. Yeah, he was not discredited, but there was a little controversy. Okay. Well, I, this was only, I was only told this very, very recently. Yeah. Um, uh, by a very interesting PhD in the field who is, uh, is really a very uh, big fan of what I'm doing right now. Uh, but what Frankel said was that he survived the concentration camps by giving himself a structure of meaning. He gave himself the role of sociologist. And he watched what happened to the wealthy as they lost their money, their jewelry, their clothing. After about four to four weeks or so, their personality started to erode six to eight weeks. Their immunity started to go uh, six to ten weeks or something like that. Their personality, their identity started to go. And uh, it was a town hill slide from there. And whereas he, you know, he communicated that he maintained his energy, his vitality, his sense of humor, etc., and that really impacted me right between the eyes. I realized, oh my God, this is why people die when they retire. This is why people die when they lose their husband or their wife of 16 years, if they don't have a structure of meaning. And so I started thinking about meaning, started thinking about Maslow, uh, realized that Maslow has various limitations. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost explicitly religious, and this is a lot. Started creating my own structure of meaning, identified uh, seven different structures of meaning or path to happiness once you have survival covered, once you have food, water, shelter, language. And the last one was mythology. And I began thinking about mythology. And then I realized, oh my God, it, you know, Zeus is not the only guy with a mythology. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio isn't the only person with a, myth with a mythology or Jesus or anybody. Every one of us has a mythology and every one of us has an amazing mythology, no matter who we are. And so I began playing with this and I came up with initially seven questions, which over time evolved to 17 questions um, and, and ultimately, you know, a very precise structuring of those questions. And then a growing uh, database of anecdotal analysis tools uh, by which I could I could process people's answers to the point where now, you know, I'm, I'm very confident it's well over a thousand people. I've done my 17 questions for people in the White House, uh, a couple billionaires, a couple spies, uh, a growing number of celebrities, hundreds and hundreds of CEOs. I literally was flown at one point by three CEOs to another country to do it. It's a, an amazingly bonding experience. Only one person uh, didn't, well, there were two people that, that I didn't love the tool. And I've done it for very well-known self-help authors and agents and all kinds of people. My dad said it was, well, yes. Um, but, you know, my dad, uh, you know, 91-year-old tank commander, uh, and he, I believe he actually liked it, uh, but that was just the nature of our relationship. And he's my biggest fan now. This was decades ago that he said that. Uh, and then there was one person in the intelligence services uh, who was on the operations versus an analysis side. And people on the operations side tend to be uh, recruited very early and they're not given a chance to really, uh, you know, foster and develop, you know, a rich sense of self because they have to be first and foremost dedicated to mission. And so this particular person was a little bit frustrated that uh, she couldn't answer, you know, a, a, a subset of the questions because simply there were questions that she had never thought of before. 
And in fact, uh, multiple of my questions are like that. But I, anyway, I'm currently, I've also uh, begun to set the stage to uh, do a podcast like you. I'm very happy to be on your podcast. Uh, this will be a board game. Um, I, I set up a PhD for myself to do this in Scandinavia as an automated tool, which is my goal. I, I, I don't want to charge 500 to $1,000 to do this. It's the equivalent of two years of psychotherapy, roughly. I want everyone to be able to do it for 25, you know, 25 euros or dollars. So I intend for it to be automated, to be an app. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's what I'm doing right now with the majority of my time, not all of my time, but it is, it is, uh, it is my, my life work. Wow, that sounds absolutely fantastic and I have heard about it at different stages in I think we've known each other I want to say 30 years but um, I that number is shocking to me I don't feel 30 years old so um, I know that's unbelievable so I'm very excited that you're at a stage where you are looking at doing this digitally because I've just heard so much about it over the years um, David. Well, I, I will be happy to do it for you too, Lily. I, I look forward to that time. I can't believe we haven't done it yet. I know. Uh, we, we may have, but um, anyway, I'm sorry about that. Not a, don't, no, no, no. Just it's good to have things to look forward to. David, before we go, I want to also talk to you. Well, I'll, I'll, tell, I, I'll tell you the website, by the way. Uh, just so you know, it's coming. It'll be up uh, probably next week. It's seventeen dash questions dot com uh, or seventeen questions dot com, uh, and it should be up by the time you you put this to air. Um, I recently awoke in my uh, middle sixties, realizing that I had spent my life helping so many other people, not only with my questions but mostly with their ventures. You know, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Um, beginning in the early 80s and I was involved in starting 50 companies and I've raised money many times and I just got to the point where I realized it was time for me to go for it while I still could. So I am you know, I am ramping up on the 17 questions even though I'm still doing the various other things that you're aware of in my life right now. And please, as soon as you've got the actual website, uh, send it to me and I will absolutely include it in the description of this program um, and the description of, of the interview you so absolutely let us know and uh, David there are so many aspects of your life that I'd still love to talk about and um, one in particular uh, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about the birthday parties you used to have because they were an experience that I was very fortunate enough to experience on a number of occasions I even drove from LA to San Francisco one year to uh, to join your celebration. Talk about that for just a little bit because I also want to talk about you becoming a husband and a father and, and how that changed your life as well. So you know that, that um, part of my identity is that I produce movies and I've got some, I have four TV series, including one possibly for Australia. Actually, one of my movies is maybe an Australian movie as well. And I do music and concerts and uh, produce games. Everything I do, of course, being related either to social impact or explicitly to mental health, uh, although uh, it's all entertainment. I just like doing inspirational media. Yes. Media producer, 
people and a lot of creative people. And um, so indeed, uh, I have, you know, spent my life actually going all the way back to high school, having really fun parties. And uh, I don't believe a party's a party without music. Uh, but instead of just, you know, having a stereo playing, I might have the sax player for Pink Floyd or Supertramp or um, guys from Digital Underground jamming in my living room. Uh, I have uh, always, uh, you know, always really enjoyed bringing great people together and fostering what happens when good people come together in the right context, which is creativity and, you know, innovation, disruption, new partnerships. And um, when I lived in Santa Cruz, I had a big house on the beach over the boardwalk there. And every three months, there'd be a couple hundred people at my house and I would just have these amazing parties. But I think you're referring to my, my 40th birthday party or my yes. 50th birthday party, perhaps. <laughs> yes, and, um, So, yeah, my 40th birthday party, uh, I had um, about 500 people in a recording studio from all seven continents. And a uh, buddy of mine, you know, actually a soccer player for Pink Floyd was there performing. I had um, uh, I had people from opposing intelligence forces uh, <laughs> meeting each other uh, that I happened to know socially, strangely enough. Uh, I And my father got up on stage. I had my family there. And he got up on stage and he said, you know, we, you know, have had been unclear what you've been doing so far away, 3,000 miles away in California. Um, and I never really focused on money, Lily. I, I, I had multiple job offers from Microsoft, you know, one of which was purportedly worth, you know, many tens of millions or more in options. Um, I turned down job opportunities in some of the biggest entertainment companies in the world. Uh, you know, that was never my driver. My driver has always been to make a difference in the world. And once I got a family to make sure they're safe as well. But my father got up on stage and now he said, uh, I understand now that your great wealth is right here before you. And there were 500 people, if you remember, that had yes. flown themselves from all over the world to come. And uh, this, there's a critical mass that happens when you curate good vibes and good people and good projects. And so you know, I, I guess I was a little bit of you know, the best of the Silicon Valley culture that is, you know, transitioned. You know, I mean, I knew Steve Jobs, but that was more socially than business. Yes. Even though I did do projects with Apple. We, you know, a lot of us knew each other socially. And uh, and it would work in business, too. I, I ended up getting the Steve Jobs movie as executive producer simply because I knew Steve Jobs. Dan Cocky was a good buddy of mine, and I had done some stuff with Apple. But... Um, uh, it's different today. And, you know, COVID obviously well, clearly changes the face of actually, socializing. What it, what it really was um, and what made the party so great was that, especially since I was living in L.A., it wasn't that there were so many people there, but unlike most parties that I went to, it wasn't people looking around at each other to see who they uh, could impress or who they might be able to meet. The vibe of the party was just everybody, no matter who they were, 
being there because of their love and friendship for you. And it was everybody was just having a good time themselves. So it wasn't that, oh, this is a this is a this kind of party where you might meet somebody, even though there were amazing people to meet. It really was real people just really enjoying themselves. And that that was just huge. That's why we all came back year after year. We just loved it. I'm really flattered uh, by that observation, Lillian. Um, I have dear, dear friends in Los Angeles, and I, I will be there soon again. And I, you know, I do business there. But I always felt LA was a little bit more, probably because of the business, like high school. You know, you're either better or worse than somebody, and you're always comparing yourself. They, they humorously call it the land of the big car and the TD condo. <laughs> Uh, and you never get invited to see the condo. Well, um, you know, Silicon Valley in, in uh, Glens. Yes, no, I was going to say that coming from Australia, people would say, what's the difference between America and Australia? And I'd say, in Australia, you can know somebody for two, three years and not know if they're the CEO or the cleaner. You just meet people and you mix with them because you like them. Whereas in the States, everybody, you know, the first thing they want to find out is what car you drive and and what you do. And that's why I felt so comfortable at your parties because it was more like Australia. Yeah. Remember that that's a generalization. Yes. Because what you're acknowledging now is that my parties were more like Australia, but it was still, you know, in the United States. Yep. And there are wonderful people everywhere on the planet. And you'll also remember there were a lot of Australians at my party, too, and even New Zealanders. But let's not go there. (laughs) So um, uh, I'm I'm honored again by your observation. I'm here in Europe and, you know, it's much more it's much more like Europe, I'd say, um, Australia is more like Europe than the United States. But, you know, it's not all like that at all. Uh, it's just the, the closer you get to the arts, you know, and artists, uh, and entrepreneurs are artists too. Entrepreneur, you know, artists yes. are just entrepreneurs without a portfolio. <laughs> the, the, the closer you get to people that are themselves and manifesting their destiny, the more you get to people that are just purely being themselves and are authentic. The more authentic we are, the more we're going to attract people like ourselves and or that are compatible with ourselves. Yes. You know, but we need people that are different from ourselves and complementary to ourselves to, you know, and that's, by the way, reminds me of a point I want to make earlier, which is I believe that dyslexia, ADD, um, Asperger's, these are all reflections of humanity evolving itself um, or attempting to evolve itself from a Darwinian perspective and I'm a little concerned, frankly, about where things like Asperger's are taking us. You know, autism. These are these are considered disorders. I don't see them as disorders. I see them as as evolutionary aberrations that may take hold. That may be preparing us for a future where machines become a species. Um, and, um, and and it's predicted. This is not an original thought for me. It's predicted that could happen around. 20 or 50 or so, and one of my movies uh, will address that issue. There's a term called the technium, which describes the aggregate of, of machinery with AI as the tip of the spear as a new species wow. uh, for many reasons. And I, I just wonder if humans lacking empathy you know, are more like code, you know, because well, machines don't have empathy. 
and, and that's where AI has been limited. But that's another long conversation. We've only got Absolutely. three more minutes here. We only have a few more minutes. And I'd really just like, and also just very quickly in that respect, you know, you were talking much earlier in the interview about um, excluding uh, negative people and stuff. And I just wanted to say that um, I'm sort of triggered, you know, with all this, uh, with language in particular. And rather than focusing on who we want to exclude in our lives, it's more about what we do want, which is more people that do make us feel good and comfortable. I love that. So, so healthy, Lily. And, and I know I'm on air, I wanted to sing it, but it's my, my, my truth. And, and just and a perfect segue into that is the kind of life that you've led, which was just so exciting and, and so you're so passionate about so many things. But then you did find love and you did get married and you now have a child. So just talk a little bit about transitioning from this global human being into a husband and father. So just a couple of thoughts in our final minutes here. Just going back to what you said a few minutes ago, Saturday Night Live has this wonderful character called Deborah Downer. And every time she's there and says something that's a downer, the music goes wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and which actually comes, harkens back to the old Jewish humor in New York. I think they had a trombone player whenever, you know, uh, you know Carl Reiner said something funny. But anyway, uh, you know, people are, down like that because they're not happy they don't have uh, joy in their life they don't know who they are yet so they're just reacting to the world instead of creating or manifesting yes uh, I did finally meet my wife and it would be way too long a story to tell you how I did meet her it did uh, not change my life but evolved my life and um, I'm still very much a global person it's just when somebody wants me to come and give a speech in the Middle East or in Asia uh, I only go if they take my wife and son, mm. which also works because my wife is actually speaks many languages, as you recollect. Yes. But um, I, I, I accepted the transition because having so many relationships in your life is actually quite exhausting. And as you get older, you've got to be more precious about the two greatest assets any of us have, which are time and energy. So I, I, I live, I trust my life. I trust God. I believe everything's perfect. And I was just very grateful to have this new life that gave me a, a lot more time, but also an entirely new set of experiences around which I could I could learn love, intimacy, patience, respect, sharing, and all the things that make parents oftentimes want to do business with parents because you learn a lot as a parent and you know a lot of it's valuable. Uh, yes, and thank you so much. And it is, look, the... I've known you through many situations and many changes in your life and throughout all of them, you have always remained one of the most cheerful, positive and giving people um, that I know. And I can, I, I think we've even gone three, four, five years without speaking and then all of a sudden it's like it was yesterday. So thank you very much for all of those years of friendship and especially for being such an amazing guest on Lily High on Life. Well, I will close by saying, number one, thank you. But number two, um, I love Steve Martin and the comedian. And, and I would use his voice and say, you can be happy too. It's just 
understanding and believing that you have a reason for being here. Figure out what it is. Figure out why the things that have happened to you have happened. Understand that they're not all bad. There's a way to look at them in a positive way and realize that you have a gift, which is life, and be grateful for all you have. There is a reason for being here. You just got to know it and you got to understand that attitude is everything and choice. Happiness is a choice. And On love that note, thank yourself. you so much, to yes. And I'm love yourself. You said you so before, much. loving yourself is so important. Learn to love yourself. Absolutely. Being grateful. Being yes. grateful for the deck of cards you've been given. Thank you, David Traub, for being such an awesome guest on Lily. High on life. Tune in next week. Thank you so much.